0: Welcome to Stones Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Marco Veneri, geology PhD student at the University of Calgary. He is specializing in mudstone sedimentology and petrophysics. We'll be discussing Marco Veneri, Per Pedersen, and David Eaton's recent publication, predicting unconventional reservoir potential from wireline logs. A Correlation Between Compositional and Geomechanical Properties of the Duvernay Shale Play of Western Alberta, Canada. We'll also incorporate elements from their previous paper, the one by Marco Venieri, Ronald Heard, Scott McKean, Kerr Pedersen, and David Eaton, titled Determining Elastic Properties of Organic Rich Shales from Core, Wireline Logs, and 3D Seismic. A Comparative Study from the Duvernay Play Alberta, Canada. Some highlights include discussing how spectral gamma-ray and pulsed neutron spectroscopy can reveal elastic properties. We're rocking out today with Marco Venieri. Welcome to Stone Snows. Hi Marco, and thank you so much for joining me on the show today.
1: Hey Maureen, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here talking about my research.
0: You've done a lot of work on the geological and geomechanical properties to understand how to optimize drilling and completion strategy in horizontal well bores. And the most common parameters used to capture these are the isotropic elastic moduli of Young's modulus and Poisson's ratio. Can you give us an overview of what these two parameters are for a quick geomechanical refresher?
1: First, if you think about Hooke's law of elasticity, uh, this tells you that if you basically apply a load to a material, uh, the resulting strain in a certain point is going to be proportional to the applied stress in that specific point. So elastic moduli, actually, they are constants uh, that describe uh, these stress-strain relations. So together, uh, these constants can be used as input to understand how elastic materials actually respond mechanically to applied stresses. And that's why they are so important for uh, geomechanical analysis. Um, Young's modulus and post-ratio are two of the most used uh, elastic moduli. Uh, they are uh, mainly four in total with bulk modulus and shear modulus uh, together with Young's modulus and pulsar ratio. Um, and so for description of Young's modulus and pulsar ratio, imagine that you apply a vertical load to a material. Uh, so this material will obviously deform in the same direction uh, of the applied stress, and that's kind of intuitive. Uh, but it's also intuitive that the material will also deform perpendicularly uh, with respect to the applied stress. So if we apply a vertical load to the rock, uh, Young's modulus is a ratio of axial stress to axial strain. And Poisson's ratio is a ratio of lateral strain um, to axial strain. So this was just a quick uh, geomechanics refresher. Uh, but something I feel like I need to, let's say, add uh, is that geomechanics goes well beyond elastic moduli. So some examples of these are stresses, you know, pore pressures, uh, maybe many other parameters, which are as important as elastic moduli uh, when drilling and completing a horizontal well. Uh, and a comprehensive geomechanical study performed by a geomechanical engineer is required for this purpose. So, I'm a geologist, I'm not a geomechanical engineer. And for this study, we actually limited our geomechanical investigation to elastic modeling because our ultimate goal it was actually not to understand the impact on drilling and completion, but was actually to bridge uh, geology and geomechanics. So, in this case, Young's modulus and Poisson Ratio are the most suitable data set to be put into a geological perspective because they can be measured relatively easy. And as a consequence, there is actually a lot of of publicly available data, which we can incorporate into our piece.
0: That's a good point. You know, you're really looking to correlate the geology and the wireline logs to the geomechanics. So these were just two parameters that you chose. And then there were two types of tests that you used for these parameters, direct tests and indirect tests. What data did you use to represent each type of these tests?
1: Yeah, so that's right. We, we can estimate those elastic model in two ways, uh, the direct and indirect way. So, the direct way entails core testing. So, for direct data, we actually use triaxial testing in ports, which are available through the Alberta Energy Regulator data set. We use triaxial testing because they're the most complete, uh, but other alternatives can be UCS, so UniAxial Compression, and Brazilian. So, we chose triaxial because we had a good amount of multi stage triaxial data set, which were actually crucial for our analysis. And I'm sure there's going to be occasion to chat about it later on. Uh, the output from these testing is an isotropical modular. For this study, we actually only consider core plugs which were taken perpendicular to the Duvernay bedding. And this represents the, actually the direction along which the rock is weakest uh, compared to parallel to bedding, which is actually the strongest, or 45-degree angle plugs, which are a thing as well. So, of course, all these three orientations, they have to be taken into account when we build a comprehensive and anisotropical mechanical model, which is you know, what shales most certainly are. Uh, we only consider one dimension, and in case cases, the plugs taken perpendicular to bedding because um, our objective was not to build a mechanical model, uh, but rather comparing the elastic model and measuring measured with uh, different techniques. In this case, cores, logs, and seismic. So, for core measurements, uh, elastic model is actually measured by looking at stress versus strain curves, uh, for example, which is you know the proper way to, to do so. Uh, concerning indirect data sets, uh, we have three D seismic and wireline logs. I said before when we talk about core plugs and core testing, we actually measure. We physically measure elastic moduli by looking at stress versus strain curves. In case of 3D seismic and wireline logs, we of course, we, do, we don't have uh, such curves. So in this case, elastic moduli actually computed using bulk density and compressional and shear sonic velocity curves from well logs. A similar process is actually applied to 3D seismic uh, where we have a process called seismic inversion. So this is calibrated with uh, with wireline logs. Um, and then as a result of the inversion, we actually generate 3D cubes of bulk density, compression and shear sonic velocity. Uh, and yes, in a second step, we can actually use these cubes as input to compute the elastic model like using the same exact equations uh, that we use for well logs. So the output from this is isotropical model, which, you know, we know it's simplification of the reservoir complexity because shale are, you know, highly anisotropic. And the cores uh, we, we are using for this study are um, representing anisotropical data set as well. But because there was no well uh, with sonic scanner near the seismic, uh, which is like, you know, Required to generate anisotropical models from wireline logs and seismic, we had to use isotropical model. So we are actually spatially constrained uh, by the seismic location. So ultimately, we want to include seismic into the comparison. Uh, and therefore, we are constrained spatially on the data uh, that we could use since using data too far from the seismic would not be scientifically correct. So all of our data were within two miles from the seismic volume. Therefore, we actually can compare the results. So there was a main difference here between uh, direct and indirect data sets.
0: So the direct tests on the core, they were oriented for the weakest rock, making it anisotropic. Whereas on the seismic, uh, there was no orientation and it was isotropic. I think you also mentioned in your paper there there were different scales of magnitude between seismic and core. Um, how would that affect what you're looking at within the shale, both the scale and the dynamic versus static?
1: Yeah, so that's a really that's a really good point here. So. The problem is, this is exactly why it's so difficult to correlate studying and dynamical properties. So the thing is like, even if they both, uh, let's say, describe mechanical rock properties, direct and indirect measurements have their assumption behind. You know, core testing, they measure elastic modeling the proper way. Uh, This entails analyzing the stress versus strain curves of the samples uh, while undergoing vertical loading. Uh, So the downside with that is that usually pressure is lost uh, when bringing the sample to the surface. Uh, another downside is that you know these tests are vertically and laterally discontinuous, uh, which can be an issue when we try to investigate the larger area. This exactly uh, turns back into the uh, the whole depth investigation thing. So on the other side, dynamic measurements they are you know they can be one D vertically continuous in case of logs, or they can be three D vertically and laterally continuous in case of seismic. Uh, but they both compute elastic model based on uh, other assumptions. The problem here is is that you know the difference in strain uh, between studying and dynamic measurements. result uh, result in significant differences between uh, studying and, and dynamic elastic modeling. And also, as you mentioned previously, uh, the resolution of indirect measurements is much lower uh, than core testing. So we are talking about five centimeter for a core plug, uh, which we use for uh, for triaxial testing, versus you know a depth of investigation of resolution of you know half a meter on a good day for uh, well logs, and in this case for seismic, we have a forty meter vertical and lateral solution. So these adds, you know, much more complexity to the integration between studying and dynamic data. Knowing static versus dynamic relations in a shale is very important, of course. Um, there are many papers about it. Uh, but what's really important to us uh, is to have both studying and dynamic measurements and put them into a geological context. So that's what we're actually trying to do. So ultimately, this is going to let us know if geology has an impact on elastic model at the core and the log, the seismic scale, which is, you know, the final aim of uh, the paper you me like to, to finally give a you know more concise answer to your question yes like we we have a really huge uh difference in uh, depth of investigation and resolution as you pointed out uh, but it's not an issue for us because we we do not plan to build a geological model as part of this paper we only plan to uh, to put all these geomechanical measurements from different data sets into a geological perspective so that's what we are trying to do
0: yeah, it's a good point that you're making A assumptions, not an entire model. You might need different data and different interpretations in order to make a full model. One of the things you mentioned as well was that in a perfectly elastic medium, the static and dynamic elastic properties would wind up being equal. However, there's discontinuities and pore fluids that result in a discrepancy. What features in the reservoirs, such as the Duvernay, make them the imperfect elastic mediums?
1: That's a good point. So my point here is that generally, you know, the problem here is not the presence of, you know, discontinuities or let's say poor fluids per se, um, but rather that, you know, the presence of discontinuities and poor fluids, uh, they result in a geomechanical response that becomes dependent on other factors, uh, such as, you know, frequency, attenuation, we have fluid saturation, fluid composition, stress conditions, strain, the rate of strain applied, the amount of strain applied, you know, like a bunch of these, these parameters. So uh, this last parameter I just mentioned, and that's the strain, is probably the most important when comparing static and dynamic testing. So there is a significant difference in the level of rate of strain which is induced during static and dynamic testing, as you can imagine. In a static testing, we actually apply relatively large strains. We are in the order of, let's say, 0.5 to 1.5%, which, you know, for Iraqis, is a pretty big deal. Uh, so we apply these big strains, these large strain to core samples. Uh, very slowly, um, and the resulting deformation they are used to actually define geomechanical properties based on the stress versus strain curves, as I uh, mentioned earlier. So what happens in dynamic testing is actually elastic modeling, they actually measure using very high frequency uh, wave propagation that applies small strains. Uh, we are in the order of like 10 to the minus 4, 10 to the minus 5, uh, and these like, small tra- strains are actually applied very rapidly. And this is in customers with the strains uh, for triaxial testing, which were actually applied very slowly. So this difference in strain actually creates a complex interplay of conditions when we compare static and dynamic properties, especially since, you know, many static geomechanical testing are conducted under drain conditions. And this means, uh, you know, the strain uh, buildup rate uh, is, let's call it like slow enough that pore pressure is actually allowed to dissipate in the rock course. In contrast, dynamic measurements are actually generally undrained. um, And this means that pore pressure, you know, the test is so fast that pore pressures do not have sufficient time to equilibrate. Uh, So this creates a gap between the static and dynamic output of elastic modeling. That's a really important concept to to bear in mind. Uh, Another particle distinction, as we discussed earlier, arises because of the different resolution and depth of investigation, which is unique to static and dynamic testing. So therefore, we cannot expect these uh, to perfect agree. So this indeed adds another uh, layer of complexity when we try to reconciliate, let's say, these two types of
0: So the fluid within the rock really affected how it responded under strain. Another parameter that affects it is the lithology. So if we jump into the Dubonnet here, there's the two organic rich mudstones separated by a carbonate rich unit, uh, the Dubonnet middle carbonate. And there's different compositional units within both the upper and the lower. So since this all affects the elasticity we should probably go over it a little bit. So what makes all of these lithophases in the Duvernay unique?
1: Yeah, so that's a good point. And this is exactly why we are trying to, to do our study, right? So we want to make sure that we prove uh, the geology is actually can actually explain, at least in part, uh, the elastic model of the rocks. So uh, we based our subdivision in Duvernay on sedimentary fabric and composition. We actually talk about uh, more, like rather than lithophases, we talk about petrophases. Um, and petrophases implies like let's call it like well log base phases. So the reason for that is here, we want to be able to distinguish phases on a numerical basis um, and not only on, you know, the classic sedimentary criteria since we are dealing with, a, you know, a numerical basis. We have a lot of numbers. So the reason why we actually subdivided the Duvernay based on sedimentary fabric and composition is that, you know, different fabric and composition, they result in different bulk density and seismic wave velocity. And this is what is used, uh, as I said before, as input for dynamic elastic modeling. Like so that's you know, a good concept to, uh, to keep in mind. And for this study, we actually subdivided the Gouvernet into three main petrophases. So we have a carbon-rich petrophases, organic-rich, and clay-rich. So as you can imagine, I'm a geologist, you're a geologist. Like, this is a quite an extreme simplification of reservoir complexity. You know complexity. We, we know that very well. And obviously, we can go much crazier you know, with like petrophases count. Uh, but this had to be done. This simplification had to be done um, to be able to upscale our study to the seismic real. Which is, you know, the goal of this study. We have seismic, and we want to use it. So, therefore, you know, it wouldn't make sense to identify, you know, very subtle like differences in petrophases when seismic has a, you know, a forty meter resolution, as I mentioned earlier. So, ultimately, what we want to prove here is that, you know, carbon-rich, organic-rich, and clay-rich petrophases, they display different elastic model light due to their unique fabric and composition. So, these are has already been proven uh, in core uh, in several shale plays around the world. Uh, But we want to put in a well log and seismic perspective as well. So now we have fabric and composition on one side and elastic modeling on the other side. So these, you know, these are independent data sets. So therefore, if this correlation is found at the log and the seismic scale, uh, then we know that we found a common point between core logs and seismic, you know, which is what we are trying to achieve.
0: Calling it petrophases instead of lithophases really gives you the visual of you're determining these facies from logs instead of from the core. It's a great way to explain it. The publicly available triaxial core tests that you used were not standardized. What were the differences between all of them and how did you deal with normalizing them?
1: That's a good point as well. So, and that's a point we made in our paper. So there was a standardization of the testing. So the issue here is that, you know, the way these tests are run is not standardized. For example, the strain rate buildup is not standardized and the confining pressure of the test is not standardized. For the first one, uh, for the uh, strain rate buildup, I mean, we either have the data or we don't. And there's really not much we can do if you don't have the data. Uh, but there's usually data available for confining pressure. Uh, like the Alberta energy regulator, like data sets, is publicly available. And they, you know, the operators always put down the confining pressure of the testing. So if we actually plot all the cable cores in the basin, so not just the ones close to the seismic, which have multi-stage triaxial, uh, which means you know we, we take a sample, we put in the triaxial cell, and we started the testing with, uh, with, a, with a little stress. And then we, we rapidly increase and decrease the test in like, cycles. We have different triaxial testing with a different sigma 3. The confining the pressure is actually what we change. Uh, and then, therefore, we have different elastic model. Life. So when we do so, then we notice that the elastic model they increase with increasing confining pressure, only in 70% of the cases. So this is you know, pretty odd, uh, because increasing confining pressure, it actually should stiffen, as you can imagine, the contacts between the grains and close the microcracks. So making the sample actually stiffer. So as you can imagine, when we increase sigma three confining pressure, then uh, the elastic modulus should also increase. So we believe that you know in this case sample damage during testing is what causes elastic modulus uh, to decrease with increasing confining pressure, and that's kind of like reasonable interpretation behind it. So this is you know quite common in multi-stage testing uh, after cycles of like loading and unloading, uh, but we, without accessing the stress versus strain curves for all the samples, we cannot tell for sure. So this huge range in any pressure, uh, which you know, can range between zero to, let's say, 5,000 PSI-ish, also explains why you know when plotting young modulus versus fossil ratio for the three data sets, core data always have the highest amount of scatter. Finally, in conclusion, like this this lack of standardization uh, among like, different operators when they test is certainly an issue, but I'm sure we can deal with it.
0: Yeah, so there was different stresses and strains, but since they were marked down, we we're able to know what they were and account for it. So each of the units within the Duvernay had a different Young's modulus and Poisson's ratio. What was the relationship between each unit and the elastic properties in your findings?
1: Yeah, so that was one of the main points of, um, of our study. So the thing here is like by subdividing the, uh, the Duvernay to organic-rich, clay-rich, and carbon-rich, we actually create, you know, these three petrofaces, and we can actually box plot or cross plot all the elastic moduli for each one of the faces. We actually found out for clay, so clay has the lowest Young's modulus and the highest, uh, and, you know, very, like very high possible ratio, as we expect, like that has, seen, has been seen before uh, in CORE. Uh, but, like we also saw the same thing in well logs, which is another data set which allows us to subdivide interdubrinate phases, which you know seismic doesn't. Concerning organic rich phases, uh, it has higher youngs modules and lower postration than the clay. and we also expect this from core studies. But there's uh, these works uh, for well logs and seismic, which is which is pretty cool. And concerning carbonate, carbonate, as we expect, has the highest Young's modulus and the highest possible ratio. But all these three data sets, they actually agreed on this. Uh, and this confirms that geology and elastic modulus are tightly correlated, not only at the core scale, uh, but also the well log and seismic scale, which is, of course, the aim of this research. So concerning data sets, which have, you know, lower, lower resolution to set seismic. So seismic cannot be shared uh, between intra phases. Like, the resolution is simply too low. But what seismic does is actually can give us insights uh, on the uh, on the bounding strata for the Duvernay, which are the iron and the Beaver, and the same relations between uh, mineralogy and elastic moduli in the Duvernay are, are actually seen also in the Beaverial and the Iron, which makes it you know the study applicable to uh, the bounding strata for the Duvernay.
0: So really, the seismic resolution was low enough that seeing features within the Duvernay was difficult but seeing differences between the Ireton above and the Beaver Hill Lake below, um, because it was a more sharp contrast, you were able to see those better?
1: That's correct. For seismic, we can actually not see, we cannot appreciate like inter features. But what we could see in seismic was actually the contact between uh, the Ireton and the Duvernay. This is, you know, both because we based the seismic inversion on well logs and well logs can capture these, these boundary quite beautifully, but also, you know, it's also a reason, it's also a consequence of the difference of fabric and composition on those elastic moduli like between the Duvernay and the Ayrton. You know, our foundings are not only significant for the Duvernay, but also for expanding strata, as I mentioned before. So it is very important when we build three mechanical models um, of the subsurface, which can give insights about you know, the mechanical behavior of the reservoir uh, when, our, when uh, it undergoes hydraulic fracturing treatment. You know, as you can imagine, chemical properties of the banding strata to the Duvernay, uh, they have a huge impact on the way that induced fractures uh, grow vertically when we hydrofract the rock. So, of course, you know, a good three stress and pressure models also have to be built for these analyses uh, because the elastic moduli alone are not, you know, enough of the data sets for these analysis. But this simple, like, you know, subdivision, also in seismic, can actually help characterizing the differences between the Ayrton and the Duvernay, at least, on a, at least in a relative basis.
0: Yeah, and I like how you took this work and you really built on it. So you know, you saw that you could see the boundaries, but not inside the Duvernay. So next up, you you did some really good work with well logs for the paper you have coming out now, predicting unconventional reservoir potential from wireline logs. A correlation between compositional and geomechanical properties of the Duvernay shale play of Western Alberta, Canada. And in this study, you did a correlation between the spectral gamma ray. Impulse to neutron spectropersky to reveal elastic properties, and you developed a workflow where you first focused on the mineralogy and then second on the geomechanics. Can you walk us through this process and workflow that you developed?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So, so this this work was really built in parallel to the paper we discussed like earlier on in this podcast, but. Really, they, they kind of go one following each other. So in the paper on the uh, comparison of the elastic modeling from coarse, well log and seismic, we actually demonstrated that, uh, you know, geology and elastic modeling, like, they are actually tightly correlated at, like, no matter what the measurement technique is, so coarse, well logs, and seismic scale. So in this last paper uh, they just got published in the APG bulletin uh, that you just mentioned, we actually thought about, you know, how do we use it to our advantage? So how do we use the correlation between geology and elastic modeling to our advantage? So the answer we found is basically like, well, if geology and elastic model are related, how about we use you know, geology to predict elastic model? So you know, this can come really handy because geomechanical the data they can be quite scarce um, in certain areas, as we all know. Whereas geological data they are generally more abundant. So in the paper, we basically discuss how to get as many as possible or rock composition and fabric from well logs, and then use these to predict elastic modeling, Since now we know they are related. So the idea of using, you know, mainly well logs comes from the fact that it significantly increases data coverage on the basin, uh, since we would no longer need uh, to rely only on cores uh, for the geomechanical characterization of these unconventional reservoirs. So the idea is similar as a previous paper we discussed in this podcast earlier. So in that one, we subdivided the gubernate into carbon-rich, organic-rich, and clay-rich petrophases. Instead, you know, in this paper, we cross-plot directly uh, compositional indicators on well logs versus elastic We find correlations. So the logs that we chose are uh, PNS logs, uh, which is, you know, it stands for pulse Neutron spectroscopy. Uh, that's the equivalent of, you know, an XRF, which is running a well Uh And it gives us output the most commonly occurring elements in nature uh, and in these rocks, such as, you know, silicon, aluminum, and calcium, uh, which we can also find in XRF. So it's actually good to, it's easy to compare uh, the two. And we also use spectral gamma logs. Um, so that's a subdivision of the total gamma ray into the three main components, which are thorium and potassium. After finding a good correlation between rock composition and elastic model, we cannot predict actually elastic model using compositional data only. And this significantly increases the geomechanical data coverage in the base. Uh, in a second step, uh, we use these PNS and SGR. So, you know, these uh, XRF equivalent and special gamma well logs, they can be predicted using common well logs. Such as gamma ray, resistivity, neutral density, and sonic in wells which don't have these more sophisticated logs which I'll give info about rock composition. So this is this actually extends our study to portion of the basin where you know logs suggesting direct info rock composition are not present. So at this point, now we are able to have at least a rough idea of the elastic model of the rock units just by simply considering geology and rock mineralogy. So this comes really handy in areas like in sonic scanner logs, which are required to compute elastic modeling. Uh, vice versa, of course, we can also predict rock mineralogy and composition using elastic modeling. If sonic scanner logs are available in the area, but other logs which give you know more directive about fabric and composition or not. So these can really both uh, these can really work like both ways. And we are really, you know, we're really happy about the results and we are really excited to uh, go forward with the study.
0: Being able to use the special well logs of the SGR and the PNS and having a way to develop those answers from just standard logs is so powerful, right? One of the things you found was that having um, silica, aluminum, and calcium, and then the thorium, uranium, and potassium, you did some cross plots of that with the elastic ratios of Poisson's and Young's modulus. What were the trends that you saw in these properties?
1: When we cross plotted uh, aluminum and calcium and silicon against the elastic model, like something really interesting like showed up, which is you know what we kind of expected, but like it was still really nice to see such a good correlation. So if we cross plot actually calcium uh, versus elastic model, like, uh, when I when I discussed earlier on about you know how the carbon rich phases was behaving in seismic cores and logs, something really uh, consistent that popped up was that you know, carbon-rich phases, they had the highest Young's modulus and the highest posturation in the entire succession. And when we cross plot actually, calcium from the PNS logs versus elastic moduli and ratio we see exactly the same thing in the five wells we calibrated our study. with. Yes. So we saw a beautiful positive correlation between calcium and elastic moduli. And this, you know, of course, is because the calcium increasing calcium means increasing carbon because in the, in the Duvernay case, uh, the calcium mainly, of course, in the form of carbon. For PNS, aluminum is actually a different thing. So aluminum it commonly occurs in the uh, crystal habit of clays, clay minerals. And clay minerals have a really specific uh, geomechanical response, at least talking about isotropic uh, elastic model. So we saw before when we compared coarse, uh, seismic, and well logs that increasing aluminum, increasing clay, and clay had you know a fairly high ratio and the lowest Young's modulus. And this is exactly what we see when cross-plot aluminum versus elastic model. Increasing aluminum uh, decreases Young's modulus and also uh, generally increases ratio. So that was, you know, those positive linear uh, and negative linear trends that we saw while cross-plotting those elements versus uh, elastic modulus.
0: It's such a good way to think about it. It's not just the element, it's what it means. So, you know, the aluminum goes to the clay. And the calcium goes to the carbonate content. So one thing that you did notice as well was that Poisson's ratio increased when you had increasing PNS aluminum and PNS calcium. But the PNS silicone had a variable effect. What was the geological reason behind this?
1: Yeah, so that was a good point. And you made the point earlier. It's not really about the element. It's all about the, uh, the compound. It's all about the mineral. So every element uh, can, you know, it can happen in many different forms. Uh, so for aluminum and calcium, we actually, you know, we discussed calcium is mainly in carbon-rich phases and aluminum is mainly in clay-rich phases. Uh, for silicon, it's actually a bit more tricky. And that's the reason why PNS silicon is very difficult to uh, to collocate, uh, spatially. So the reason why is that, you know, silicon can happen in many different forms. Considering that, you you know, we divided the Duvernay into carbon-rich, organic-rich, and clay-rich phases in the uh, previous paper, and imagine where silicon can collocate in those phases. So it can collocate both in the organic reach phases, because that's called biogenic silicon, so that's still silicon. And you can also collocate in the clay reach phases, uh, which is the clay, uh, the illite reach phases. So really the silicon here was very difficult to collocate in those composition versus elastic like plot because we don't take into account, I mean, we did, but like if we just do it at a, as a first glance, if you don't take into account the form that silicon occurs in, then it's pretty, it's pretty much impossible to figure out the effect of PNS silicon on elastic model. So what we found out is that when the, uh, the silicon is paired with uh, with low aluminum ratings for the PNS, that means that's biogenical silicon because aluminum is a proxy for clay. So when the silicon luminum ratio is high, which means there is way more silicon in excess than aluminum, then this increased Young's modulus and decreased fossil ratio because it occurs as biogenic silicon. Conversely, if the silicon aluminum ratio is very low, it means there is way more aluminum with respect to the silicon. Then that means this silicon mainly occurs in the form of clay. So this is gonna lower the Young's modulus and actually increase the concentration.
0: It's a really good point. You know, if you take a look at the silicon curve by itself, you'll get one answer that might be misleading. But if you look at it in conjunction with the other curves, such as aluminum, it might tell you more what's going on with the elastic properties. So the influence of TOC on the mechanical properties remained elusive. Why was that?
1: Okay, so TOC yes, is a bit trickier here uh, because it's just one of the parameters which can influence, you know, geomechanical properties. And it's, it really depends. It's a multivariate problem, right? So it really depends on how many parameters, you know, exert this sort of influence on elastic model and what's the feature importance of the TOC by itself. So uh, there was a previous study from UOBase um, from group uh, and they actually found out that in core, rock maturity matters for elastic model like rock hardness, just when the rock is actually immature. In the Cape of Duvernay Basin, all the data that we use were uh, taken by, like we from uh, from Wells, where the Duvernay was mature, like early mature to over mature. But we didn't have anything, any location where the Duvernay was actually immature. So we weren't able to do this distinction between you know the immature uh, portion of the Duvernay where apparently TOC as influence on hardness and the mature, let's call it mature portion of the DuVernay when uh, where the where the TOC doesn't allegedly play like an influence of overall hardness. So we really we really kept this uh, hanging. We are definitely planning to uh, to get back to it at some point. We can uh, predict carriage and volume from uh, from multi-min logs with a fair amount of confidence, but we decided just to keep it hanging and focus more on the mineralogical
0: side. So speaking of the mineralogy. Using the mineralogy from the logs to predict these geomechanical properties can allow operators to save money when drilling new wells due to the lack of core cutting that's required. What are the uses and limitations you found in this method?
1: The point we are making is exactly this one. So, once we have enough data to build a predictive model to predict actually core mineralogy from well logs, potentially companies can potentially save money while drilling new wells. Due to the lack of core cutting required, that's, that's totally fair enough. The problem using well I love well logs, like, but the problem using well logs is that you know we we cannot expect well logs to give a full picture of the surf surface as a core does. So that's a really important point to keep in mind. If we if we uh, if you want to use well logs uh, to predict geological properties of the rock, that's totally fine. But we there is always going to be some uncertainty associated with it. Uh, because these ECS and spectral gamma logs, as I said before, is they they actually don't give mineralogy; they give composition, and that's a really important you know difference to keep in mind. So these logs can tell you, you know, what's the relative abundance of an element in the rock, but they don't tell you uh, in which form this element occurs. With. But there is also a bit there is always a bit of forth and back. Like, looking at the data; we can do some uh, stochastic mineralogy estimation well logs, and that's totally fine. Uh, but you know. If on one hand, if on one side we, uh, we gain uh, in terms of, you know, cost cutting, on the other side, we, of course, we lose in terms of like accuracy predicting the subsurface. So I think, you know, of course, logs can both be used to predict, can be both used to predict like mineralogy and uh, elastic modeling of the subsurface, but there is a time and place for, for both of them. But we shouldn't be using either one or the other one. We should really use them both.
0: It's so true. There's pros and cons to both, Right. Some of the data that you used was public data, so things such as the XRD data and the well logs were public. What information did you use that was proprietary that would need to be collected on future wells by operators? Yeah,
1: so really, um, the, the really the strength about this study is that uh, there is not really many proprietary data that I had to use. Like all I had to do was. You know, go to the, um, to the AR database and then just mine for mineralogy uh, predictors, like data from uh, from core. So XRD, XRF, they, they both work. We used uh, triaxial data from uh, from, elastic mo- from uh, triaxial elastic modeling, from triaxial data. Uh, and then all these data are actually public in the Alberta database. It's such a great uh, resource to have. Uh, and concerning well logs all, all we used was they were uh, like publicly available well logs uh, in uh, in the Alberta energy regulator database. So there is really not many proprietary data that we use for this study, and that's one of the strengths I think of, of what we did. The only proprietary data that we had of course was a treaty seismic which we use for the other paper, uh, but concerning this one, like every piece of data that we used uh, was public data.
0: And that's the beauty of this study is it can easily be replicated because that data is so available in Alberta. Another thing you looked at was the thickness of the illite-rich layer by using the PNS, SGR, resistivity logs, Rockabell, and XRD core analysis. And you have a nice map in your paper of where the illite got up to 10 meters thick and where it was down to zero meters. Did you notice a trend in production when you compared it to the illite thickness?
1: Huh, that's that's a million dollar question, right? So the problem with unconventionals is that it's not like conventional wells, which is more I wouldn't say it's like a uni univariate like problem, but uh it's more like can be standardized easier for unconventionals. Like production is very, you know, production is a result of like two main families, let's call it. We have the completion family and then we have like you know, the subsurface family, the geology. So the geology, the geology group can actually be predicted. By geologists, we can do studies and we can have you know average quantities for uh, for the vertical succession. And we use them to predict production. But the problem is for completion data, it's actually very difficult to standardize those those data. So we need to standardize based on you know well length, number of frac stages, spacing of frac stages, tons of uh, propant injected, tons like liters of water injected, all that kind of stuff. So uh, really, it's very hard to just you know, compare one variable to to production data you can be. Uh, what we did is we actually presented this last year uh, in the Gasso conference. I'm pretty sure there's an abstract online somewhere. We actually built compositional maps for uh, for Cape of Duvernay. And then we were able to like normalize, uh, I think it was 30 wells with the same orientation, uh, roughly the same length and roughly the same number of rock stages. And we actually found out that um, it looks like this, uh, The z-light reach layer is actually, you know, harmful for production as we all can expect like clay is not the most it's not the greatest you know faces for uh, for horizontal production it has a number of issues like it takes away processing permeability from uh, you know the organic matter uh, it also creates problems uh, because of uh, combat, combat embedment issues so these are months of issues connected to the clay like one problem that we have when doing this is if we just consider the thickness of the uh, of this clay layer without considering anything else we actually don't consider that the the thickness of the whole dubernic changes is you know throughout the basin as much as the uh, the thickness of the like e light bridge layer changes as well so if you don't actually consider the both of them at the same time that we we cannot actually correlate the thickness of easy light to production but it's certainly uh, like a like a variable that we can input into predictive models to actually predict production based on completion and geological data which is something me and my team are actually currently uh, working on
0: yeah, there's so many different variables you can really put in there and different ratios, and you're building on it quite a bit from the sounds of it. So what's next for you? We're
1: currently working on a few things. These studies, uh, first of all, this has you know, a vast number of side applications. Like for example, uh, let's say by the issue of the tie between large and elastic uh, we can significantly increase uh, geomechanical data coverage in the basin, and something we, we discussed earlier. So that means now we have enough data density to build contour maps of actually elastic like for specific gubernate horizons. As if they were, you know, like standard geological contour maps. So instead of having, you know, geomechanical data sets, which I mean, not everybody is probably familiar with, we can actually simplify that. And that's, you know, a big risk. We are totally aware of this. But like, we can actually, uh, we can actually use these data and contour them, which is the beauty of, you know, having data in a numerical form. We can actually build contour maps of elastic model like where specific deformation Horizons, and we can treat it as if it was a geological map. So we can see where. The mechanical properties of the basin change across the basin, as if we were doing some sort of like you know carbonate uh, volume percent contour map for the specific subduction rise. So this way is actually much easier to visualize areas with uh, uh, different mechanical properties laterally within the basin and also vertically in the stratigraphic section. So intuitively, as you you can you may think of it this way. So the first tool that's the uh, the plane view kind of like uh, elastic model and like contour maps like this way. But the first map, this can give insights on, we can call it mechanical sweet spots, which is, I know, a terrible term, but like, it gives an idea of what we're looking for. So this can give insights on the mechanical sweet spots in the basin, like lateral. The second map that we talked about is that, it's actually a map, it's a representation where we have a vertical succession with all the, you know, uh, a model with the elastic model and ratio This can give any idea on the most suitable landing zones, horizontal wells in the Duvernay so this is what me and my team are currently working on, and we, we are very excited to see what comes next. And uh, the other thing that we are working on, a way to efficiently predict a static, so core, core equivalent, elastic model light, in areas where not many actual testing uh, are available. So the way we're approaching this is, you know, since we now learned that sedimentary fabric composition and stress state, that's a confining pressure, generalization of the confining pressure. They are what mostly influences static elastic modulite, as we discussed in the you know earlier on in this podcast. We are trying to actually build a predictive model uh, for elastic modulite uh, by using bulk density and sonic velocity from well logs and differential stress, which is the sigma one minus sigma three from subsurface estimations. In this case, really bulk density and sonic velocity, they are proxies for geology. So think about it this way. So think about it in terms of like, you know, rocks having different fabric and mineralogy, they will have different bulk density and seismic velocity. So we can actually use those uh, well logs as proxies for geology. So these data, together with an estimation of the differential stress, which is you know, doable for the subsurface, they use as input for uh, predicting elastic, like static or equivalent elastic model of the rocks. So I'm working as a part of a, you know, a great team with like, many talented you know, geomechanical engineers and data scientists. And uh, yeah, so far, the results are very encouraging, and we look forward to publish more in the new year.
0: And this has been really interesting work that you've done on the Duvernay here. So thank you so much for sharing it, Marco.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stoneconsultingcorp@outlook.com. at outlook.com. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.